It's time for another encounter with the truth as we move through the book of Deuteronomy with our study leader, Dave Wordson. I promised you that these two studies from Deuteronomy chapter 6 would help you formulate a life purpose that would stand the test of time. Stay with us for the conclusion of Pass It On and see what you conclude about the life focus Dave challenges us to make. What we need to put over our doorposts is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. He who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of water. That's the truth. It's objectively true that as a pastor teacher, when I walk into one of your hospital rooms or one of you as a brother or sister in Christ, what a difference to walk into a home when Jesus or a hospital room when Jesus is present and when Jesus is known, than to walk into a room where Jesus isn't there. What a difference. Because he really, really is the truth. And that's what Moses is trying to get across to us, that we need to put the truth above the gates of our cities and above our homes. And I would ask you, kids, I want to ask you, what's on your room wall? Parents, what's on the walls of your house? They'll tell your art, your art will tell what's important to you. You see, art tells what's important to you. Maybe some of you need to go back home and you need to get into your room by yourself and say, Moses taught me that over the doorposts of my gates and on the walls of my, of, of my room, I need to put what is true. Not legally telling you what you can put up on your room or not. I'm not hassling any one of you. All I'm doing is I'm asking you this. What's in your heart? I walk into a guy's room. Cindy doesn't belong to him. In fact, Cindy probably wouldn't, wouldn't even give him an autograph if she met him. It's all pretend. It's all a con. If it keeps on going like that, it'll probably descend into some other values. I'm really messing around with you today. I've stopped preaching and meddling, but I really care about you, and I want you to know that your art, your art determines what's really going on in your heart. The pictures that you put up on your walls, the movies that you really respond to, the movies that really grip you deep inside, they give evidence to what's really going on in your heart. And the great thing about this kingdom of grace, this, this covenant of grace, is that God's not saying you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. What he's saying is I want your heart. And I want to set you free by the truth. And the things that, that are bad, if you'll fall in love with me, I'll protect you from them because I'll change your heart. And he's saying, I want you to realize that your life is very much influenced by what you put up on your wall and what you put in your mind and, and what you do with your hands. That's what Moses is trying to get across to us. Now, what sucks us away from this love relationship with God? There's two major arteries that get clogged. And Moses goes on and talks to them in verse 10 through 12 of chapter 6. Look at them, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, and to Isaac and to Jacob to give you a land that's large and flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with kind, all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, very important phrase, when you eat and you're satisfied, be careful 
that you do not forget the land of slavery. The great danger to this love relationship with God. Some of you say, Dave, man, I remember when I first came to know Christ and I was really excited about him and there was a joy, but there is, it's not there anymore. What's happened? And Moses would come to you and say, let's, let's think about that, about this. Are you caught in satisfied forgetfulness? One of the great dangers of my own life is success and prosperity. Because when, you, when you're satiated with success, you tend to be lifted up in pride. And when you're lifted up in pride, you tend to forget that you are a slave. You forget what you used to be. And you begin to focus on the blessings of God, only they just become blessings and you forget all about God. How about you? And Moses is so wise as a teacher and he loves us so much and he comes to every one of us and says, have you forgotten the things that really count? Have you forgotten the love relationship with God? I, uh, brothers and sisters, I can't tell you of anything more hollow in all my life is to walk into a hospital room or into, say, a rest home with someone that's built their whole life living for a good meal and a good car and a good home, and now they're shriveling up like a prune and they can't eat and their home is gone and their kids have to struggle to get in to see them and all they lived for was stuff. That's really, really sad. Because at that moment you realize, man, this doesn't mean anything. There's no love, there's no dependability, there's no peace, there's no gentleness, there's no real closeness. All there was was stuff, things. And Moses loves every one of you so much, he says, don't, I don't want you to waste this precious thing called breath. I don't want you to waste this precious thing called life. He says, David, I don't want you to be an idiot and, and, and give yourself for things that will turn out to be nothing. They'll just vaporize. And he says, beware. And he says, beware to me. And he says, beware to you. And I want you to notice something. He doesn't say that the houses and the food and the good lands were bad. I heard someone say the other day, money's the root of all evil. Everyone, that scripture's misquoted again and again and again. Doesn't say money's the root of all evil. Otherwise, God did a very evil thing. He gave the children of Israel great houses. He gave them great flocks. He gave them marvelous vineyards. He gave them great prosperity in the days of Solomon. They had incredible wealth. People came from all over the world to see Solomon. And God says, I gave that to him. So if God gave it to him and it's bad, then God's a sinner. Well, you obviously know that that's not true. There's nothing wrong with the good gifts. What's wrong is when you forget about the giver. We need to really ask ourselves that this week have we been a thankful people. That's why we thank the Lord for the food. It's why when we get our checks, we need to thank the Lord for his provision. One of our elderly saints came to me and said, you know, I've been giving out graduation gifts year after year after year. And this year, I'm not sure where I'm going to do it anymore. You know, and I said, oh, no, a real cynical older person. He said, no, I'm not cynical at all. He said, I'm hurt. I said, tell me, why are you hurt? He said, you know, I send one gift after another. You know what I feel like? I feel like Jesus healing the ten lepers. I said, why is that? He said, because hardly anybody ever sends a thanks. 
from my own experience. I gave a check last year to somebody. They never even cashed it, never heard. I don't know whether it got lost, whatever. I don't know what happened. I know they got it, but that was it. And I want to share something with you young people. One of the most powerful tools for, for success and promotion in life is a spirit of thanksgiving. Adult, it's not the kid's fault. It's our fault, because we're the ones that beat out the methods, remember? In building a new radio ministry, Truth Encounter, you know one of the most important things I think that Mary and I have learned? The importance and the power and the encouragement that comes from saying thanks. There's a precious widow, I think she lives over, she lives over in the East Coast, that'll write long letters. And you write her back, and, and just a marvelous woman of God, really walked closely with the Lord, and, and she shared some of the burdens for her extended family, and to take the time out just to enter into that and say, thank you, and we love you, and we're thinking of you. My dad told me of a, of a multimillionaire businessman from, from uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. His precious boy became very ill, very ill. And it's, it's a prolonged illness where his mental structures have really been impaired. And this businessman, because he loved evangelism, went down to Argentina. And while he was in Argentina, a fellow believer came up to him, one of the Argentinians, and said, how is your boy doing? And then he says this, I've been praying for him. Consistently, I've been remembering him. And this multimillionaire that has great power in Lancaster, He's a man that has all the material things could give, but, you know, material things cannot make his boy well or bring him back to real health and vitality. That millionaire began to just cry. And the, the guy said, well, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to. I, you know, I'm just concerned about your boy. I've been praying for him. He said, I'm not crying about that. He said, you know, I just got back from a family reunion with my extended family. There are 60 strong, lots of us. You know what? Not one of my own flesh and blood family asked about my boy. And I traveled thousands of miles to a foreign country, and one of my brothers in Christ remembers to say, I'm praying for you. A whole lot of you feel like you can share honestly what's going on in your heart. You share how people express thanksgiving to you. I just want to share with you that that's one of the most powerful gifts that you can bring. And Moses is saying that when you receive the good gifts of God, when you are blessed, don't forget to say thank you. Don't forget to say thank you to God. Don't forget to say thank you to all the people around you that enabled you to do what the Lord blessed you and the gifts that he gave you. Don't forget don't become satisfied and forget. The second major, major threat against us in our lives is not only the threat of satisfied forgetfulness, but also the second threat we mentioned here is the compromise with the gods of secular society. Notice what it says in the next paragraph. Fear the Lord, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah 
Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulation and the decrees that he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. The next major threat is, is to be sucked in by the secular gods that are around you. It's a very, very powerful seduction. We are tempted to be seducted into a sleeping, satiated materialism. But second of all, we're tempted, we're sucked in by the gods of our culture. I was reading Chuck Colson's book, The Body, and Chuck shared how he was on the, the PTL for a week, a little bit more than a week. He was the MC for it. And he shared how every morning when he went from his hotel, a limousine came up, took him to the TV set. When he got to the TV set, uh, maids in waiting were ready to put powder on his nose and make sure his hair was just right and his suit was just right. And he said about halfway through the week, he went into a hotel room and he, he just felt in his heart, I'm being seduced again. Because you see, Chuck went on to share, he says, that was my problem. That's what sucked me into, into slanderously saying something about one of my fellow politicians. Because I was seduced by the power. I was seduced by people fawning over me and people telling me how great I was. And I lost sight of the fact that I'm just a common person. And my very life is the gift of God. And when he was the hatchet man under Nixon, he forgot that. In that materialistic power structure, he loved the adoration. And, and he caused him to do something really evil. And that he ended up in prison for doing and he shared, he said, when he was in prison, for the first few hours he was in prison, he kept looking around thinking about all these other really bad people, you know, all these prisoners. And he said, as he was reading the scripture, one day the Lord said, Chuck, I want you to stop looking around and thinking you're better than everyone else. Because we're all just sinners. You're all just sinners. And you're not any better than any of those, of those other prisoners. And that was the beginning when the Lord finally broke his pride. Little did he know that that would become the beginning of his entire life work, that the Lord would call him to pour out his life for those that were in prison and he, and he visited them. But you know what happens? The gods of our society, you see, our society worships success. And I want to say this, it's very important. Our side of Christianity, what the Bible church is a part of, is called evangelicalism. It's not a denomination. It, it's, a, it's a network. It's an interlocking body of people that believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again. We believe that by personally trusting in him and building our commitment for eternity upon him, that we have eternal life. We believe that this scripture is the inspired word of God. We believe that it's the truth. We believe it's an errant and it's an original writings. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. We believe in the second coming of Christ. That is this movement that's called evangelicalism. The word evangel evangelicalism comes from euangelion. It means to herald the good news. But our movement, our movement in the 80s was heralded as the number one thrust of spiritual values in the United States. In the 90s, it is being mocked and laughed at and cursed by the unbeliever. Why? 
because we've been seduced. We like our titles. We like our positions. And I want to share something with you, just very honestly. That's in my heart, too. When I walk into a pizza parlor back on the East Coast and somebody says, I know that voice, it's easy to go, boy, my voice isn't so bad after all. It must be pretty good. That's pride from the pit of hell. What's happened in the last few moments is not from me. It's not because I have a good mind. It's not because I discipline myself. Sure, those things, those tools are important, but what really happens in your heart, like whether or not you hear the voice of God, whether or not the Spirit of God changes you, whether some of you learn to be thankful, whether some of us learn together to love God with all your heart, that's not me, it's not you. It's the Spirit of God that moves. And God is saying in this passage, I am a jealous God. And I will not share my glory with a false Baal. I will not share my glory with a false Marduk. And he says, I will not share my glory if Dave Wurtzen makes himself God either. And that's what pride is. It's the deification of ourselves. And we put on our nice suits and put on our makeup and we think we're just like the world. And Chuck really exposes that in the body. He talks about the celebrity complex that's permeated our society. It's permeated us. And we need to repent of that. It's wrong. We're all just brothers and sisters. We're all just the family of God. And we dare not ever forget it. The passage closes. You say, well, Dave, how can we be cured? How can we be cured of the satiated satisfaction and forgetting God? How can we be cured of this pride that tends to deify the wrong thing? The passage closes with a real powerful paragraph. It says, in the future, verse 20, in the future when your sons ask you, when your son asks you, I want everyone in one of you to repeat after me, what does it say? When your what asks you? Answer me. When your sons, I want you to ask your dad. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say when your girls ask you. You know why? Because the girls tend to keep their act together pretty well. The girls tend to do a whole lot better than the boys. But you know what's happening in our society? The girls in this room are ending up doing everything. I want you to really get this because this next paragraph is really important. You know where you pass? You know who beats out the drumbeat? Now when there's not a daddy present because of brokenness in the home, the Lord will enable mom to beat out that drum. And I don't want to discourage any single mother that's out here, but I want you daddies to listen to me. You live in a culture where the men have stopped being men. And you know where that's come? It's not a question of growing your beard out long and lifting weights every day. You know what it means to be a man? It means you're the one in your family that picks up the drum beats. And I want to share something with you. Your kids, 99.99.900, as close as you can get, they will do what daddy does. You dads hold the key. And by the way, dad, you hold the key in, the, in our culture. You know what's happened, girls? You have gotten a raw deal. You know what the men are telling you to do? You need to have the babies. You need to clean the house. You need to make the food. You need to get up in the morning and you go to work and you just do the whole kit and caboodle. You take them to church. You read in the Bible. And I will do absolutely 
Nothing, except I will go to work and give you my check. I want to share something with you. Moses laid his finger on a really important thing. In Proverbs, whenever I've taught Proverbs, Jonathan wrote me this last week, he says, Dad, we need to do a devotional on Proverbs, and let's do it, fathers and sons. Not fathers and daughters. Janae is really, really important, and God has a great plan for her, but, but Moses understands something about leadership and what needs to happen in a culture. He's saying, I want you daddies to train your sons. Dave Ferris was telling me, he's just reading a book, you know what's wrong in L.A.? You know why the whole city burned up? Because there were no daddies for boys. And it's happening across our land. Now, I want to share something with you. I don't expect the secular society to understand that. I really don't. I don't expect the secular society to understand that, but I want us to understand it. And Moses is saying, daddies, when your son asks you, why do we do all this stuff? Look what this father was to answer. When your, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God that he's commanded us? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible. You can just hear this daddy telling the story, the Ten Commandments, as some of you might have just seen with Cecil B. DeMille, the Ten Commandments. For centuries, these Israelite daddies told the story of the Exodus, told the story of the wilderness wanderings, told the story of Sinai. They told about their history. It says, before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs, wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out of there to bring us in and to give us a land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive that it is today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. That will make us whole with God. That will make us in a right relationship with God. Now what is Moses saying? He's saying, daddies, you know one of the most important jobs you have? One of the most important jobs you have is to pass on to your sons and your daughters, but especially your sons, the salvation history. You need to pick up those drumsticks. And I want to ask, what drumsticks have you picked out? Every one of you dads is beating on a message for your sons. What are you beating out? Now, there's not everything perfect, but I want to share something. There were some drum beats that were pounded into my brain when I was a little kid. The drum beats begin. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. My dad, when I was just a little kid, when I was 18, the drum beats are going out. When I was 18, I was leading a dance band in New York. My best buddy, George, began to witness to me, and I tore up Gospels of John. And finally, I kept one of them. And one night, I read that Gospel of John, the drum beat began to work in my heart, and I was born again into God's family. Publishers asked me about two or three times, to go back over the drum beats of my life. Gloria Gaither said, go back over the drum beats of your family. Tell me what it was like. John Woodbridge said, I want you to write an article about dad, about your dad. Tell me about the drum beats. Every one of you need to do that. Every one of you need to have some time. You need to go back and you need to say, what did my dad pound into my life? 
And some of you need to say, my dad pounded some wrong messages into my life, and you need to let another daddy in heaven pound out the drumbeats that are true. Because every one of you dads, no matter what background you're from, you have a loving daddy in heaven that we've learned about in Deuteronomy 6 who's pounding out the truth for you.